We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. After being absent from the convention for several weeks, one man returns to Independence Hall with one singular objective, to derail the three-fifths compromise. Arguing that slaves are property, not persons, he will attempt to undo the large state, slave-state alliance which has, so far, resisted every attempt to remove the compromise. If he succeeds, what will the small states do in response? As the convention turns its attention to the census, the realization that there will be more states someday raises concerns about the expansion of slavery. Can a compromise be found that would establish a government for the nation? Or will the impasse end all hope for the United States? For the past few weeks, Governor Morris has been absent from the convention, presumably on personal business, and given his predilections and his uh, ways of doing things, one can guess what those personal businesses might have consisted of. However, he arrives at the convention at its lowest point, point where arguments have become very personal, where men of honor who are esteemed in our history are reduced to using insults. And questioning the integrity of, of each other, a point where the southern states, particularly the slave states, have made the determination that there's nothing to be gained here. And unless the large states will acquiesce on the issue of proportional representation in the United States Senate, what will become the Senate, they're going to walk. They've already threatened this on several occasions. They've already made allusion to the fact that they're going to probably seek out foreign uh, assistance in maintaining themselves as, as an independent nation, as it were. And in all of this, George Washington is watching and referring to them as demagogues. And the whole thing has become extraordinarily frustrating. People are leaving. People are coming. Men are discussing, men are hearing where they're writing letters. They're meeting out in Philadelphia at the, at the night spots, the hot spots in Philadelphia. The Indian Queen is uh, 
a local tavern, which regularly hosts dinner parties for various factions of the of the convention delegates. Governor Morris, of course, is not unknown to us. For those of you that have been following Constitution Thursday for some time, we're going to meet Governor Morris again later on in this process. He himself will be primarily responsible for the preamble of the Constitution. Governor Morris, of course, is an imperfect man. I guess that would be the best way to describe him. If you were to judge his moral qualities based on traditional Judeo-Christian ethics, you would probably find them lacking. Governor Morris is what is commonly referred to as a cad or a bounder. He is a man of uh, great tastes and and who wants uh, the company of women constantly with him. So much so that he doesn't really regard the wedding band as any kind of uh, deterrent to sleeping with a woman. And in fact, as he arrives at the convention, it's noted in many of the sources that we have of those days, that most of the delegates were fascinated by the way that he walked around as he spoke, with the peg leg clicking, of course, on the wooden floors there at Independence Hall. And of course, that leg itself, therein lies quite the story of a man who is imperfect. And I think, as I have gone through this process, there are some lessons that I have learned. Some of those lessons are political, and I'm not going to share them here. You'll have to listen to the regular Plausibly Live uh, episode, particularly coming up on Monday. I'm sure we'll get into some of this, about some of those political lessons from this. But one of the biggest lessons we need to learn from a constitutional historical perspective is that these men were not perfect. They were not, as Thomas Jefferson said, demagogues, demigods. They were, they were typical people, just like people today. It's, it's interesting that we have uh, a certain standard that we hold politicians to. We want politicians to be a certain way, and we're disappointed when we find out that they aren't. I've always found that curious because as you go through history, you'll find that the greatest characters in history are imperfect and probably don't meet up to the standards that we have set for them. Governor Morris, of course, is one of those who would perhaps be judged as, as failing those standards for us. He is, of course, uh, in a lot of trouble. His left leg is shattered. He, he wears a peg leg. And the reason for that is that he was caught in a peccadillo with a married woman. And in his haste to escape that situation, which could very well easily, I mean, remember, this was the era of the duel. This was the era of uh, capital punishment. It was, it, was a, it was a different time. He leaped through a window that was not on the ground floor and shattered his left leg when he landed. Thereafter was compelled to wear the, the wooden leg that would now click upon the floor as he walked around. He's a friend and an ally of George Washington. He is in favor of a strong central government. And he will serve uh, eventually on the Committee of Five, which will draft the final language, including the, the preamble, for which he will primarily be responsible. 
his his pen is is the most responsible for the final draft, and and uh, you can see that his influence in this convention is very important. But keep in mind, he has been absent for some time, including this whole discussion about three-fifths and slavery. As the convention lurches forward, I mean, they are just desperate to move on. The three-fifths thing has not been completely laid to rest, nor has slavery been laid to rest, and yet they've decided that we're just going to kind of, well, not ignore it, but we've got to try to move on. We've got to try to maybe put this aside and come back to it later. We have a problem here in that, and keep, you know, we just went through that July 4th holiday where people were praising us and talking about how hard can this be to form a government, and yet here we are still banging our heads over the simple question of whether or not the Senate, the proposed Senate, should have proportional representation or one state, one vote representation, equal representation as it's referred to. Now, just as a refresher, of course, this, the large states allied with a couple of the slave states uh, down in South, South Carolina and Georgia in particular. Um, Georgia, by the way, expecting to become a slave state in the next few years, or a large state in the next few years. It's already a slave state. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, expecting to become a large state. They are experiencing a great influx of people coming to Georgia. If you've ever been to Georgia, you know why. It's a very beautiful place. It's a very fertile place. And it has a lot of uh, natural resources. And so Georgia is expecting to become a large state, which would make four large states, Pennsylvania, uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Georgia, two slave states, two non-slave states. They've allied with uh, South Carolina. They've formed this um, cabal kind of alliance that Wilson put through his, three, his three-fifths compromise, which uh, counts slaves as three-fifths of a, of a free man. And so far, this compromise has held through all of the debates and all of the discussions. This is important because, again, this proportional representation in the Senate would be, would favor large states initially at least. Initially, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts would, on a proportional basis, dominate the Senate. I don't think we understand today what we're talking about in, in relational proportions here of the population of the country. Those three states, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, essentially had two-thirds of the population of the United States at this point in 1787, essentially. Those three states on a proportional basis are going to dominate already the House of Representatives, what will become the House of Representatives, and to do so on the proportional side of the Senate would basically put all the political power, all the legislative power, into the hands of those three states, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, all three of which have sort of different aims in, in life, in the economy. Massachusetts wants a strong economy. Pennsylvania needs a strong economy. And, of course, Virginia's economy is based in, in uh, tobacco and cotton, uh, but primarily tobacco. And, and the slave issues become uh, important to Virginia. At the same time, Massachusetts is requiring uh, the input of materials from the South, but at the same time, its Puritan ideals absolutely reject the, the notion of slavery. Pennsylvania is Quaker-dominated and led by most of the abolitionist societies, in, in fact, one headed by Benjamin Franklin. 
it's an appalling thing to Pennsylvanians. But there's an important distinction here to keep in mind. While Pennsylvania particularly does not want slavery, that is not the same thing as saying that they believe in the equality of man. The fact that they don't like slavery does not mean that they are not racially biased in Pennsylvania, as Governor Morris is about to somewhat meanly point out across the, the aisle there. All of these things are playing here. All of this stuff is, is going on, all of this swirling and whirling in the background. But over all of this is the realization that we have to establish a united government, a central national government that actually works as opposed to this confederation, which is not working. And men who we have put down in history as great men understand that the important idea here is to form a government, not a moral code. We are not here in Philadelphia to establish morality as a guidance for our nation. We're here to establish the framework of a government which can then move forward from there. Which means that despite personal feelings, despite personal ideologies, despite even state ideologies, things are going to have to be put aside for the phrase that we all hate, the greater good. It's an interesting moment in history, it really is, because we have men here who we hold, particularly in the conservative movement, as uh, men who favored small government and so forth and so on, who clearly did not do that, who wanted a strong central government, and who in one case wanted to eliminate the states entirely. And yet, they're facing this moment where they're going to have to make a choice. Do we have union with slavery, or do we have no union? I'm sorry, do we have union with slavery, or do we have no union without slavery? Some states will go their own way, some states will not. And it's at this moment, of course, that Governor Morris arrives and decides that he, in his own words, it's been said that now is the time to speak, and so I've got something to say. And he stands and his peg leg clicks across the floor as he begins to walk around the room and make his impassioned speech that will nearly bring things to a halt yet again. Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bellman Show. Today's media, print, print is dead, TV, TV is still sort of there, internet, internet is there. All those sources come in our next podcast regarding today's media and how it's changed with social media and how it may change in the future. So listen to us on Lawless Chat from the Podcast 99 Network. They still haven't built a circuit that could hold him. The Eric Wallace Podcast. This is the Scotsman. And this is Drew. And we are the Ale Evangelist Show, spreading the good news of good booze across the land. 
Wine is nice, but beer is better. It is indeed. So tune in to us on the Podcast 99 Network, where California comes to talk, www.podcast99.com. For the powdered wigs and knickers inside all of us, you're listening to Constitution Thursday. William Richardson Davey is a North Carolinian of great stature in North Carolina, but a man who virtually nobody outside of North Carolina has any familiarity with whatsoever. If you happen to be a basketball fan, Davey is the man who founded the University of North Carolina in 1793. The man sat through most of the convention. He did not stay for the entirety of it. He left uh, before signing the document, but he would become a Federalist and he would argue in North Carolina for the passage and ratification of the Constitution. But during the convention, he said very, very little, except for one sharp day when Governor Morris began to probe the three-fifths compromise and try to undo the idea that slaves could be counted as three-fifths of a person. Now, for us today, the argument seems absurd. We tend to accept the principles of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. That was not the case in 1797. As there are people today, we call them racists, who do not accept that all men are created equal, the prevailing opinion in the nation in the 1790s was the same thing, 1780s, sorry, the same thing, that many people believed, right down to the Taney decision in the 1850s, that blacks, African Americans, could not, not only weren't equal to whites, but could not be equal to whites. This was the position, and by the way, it's still the position of the Supreme Court of the United States. The, the Taney decision, the Dred Scott decision, has never been overturned by the court. Uh, Oddly enough, it took the 13th Amendment to do that. However, given that position, one has to understand the mindset of the people that we're dealing with here. By this point, remarkably enough, men who are anti-slavery are putting forth a position that we might not necessarily feel comfortable with. These men, uh, particularly Patterson of New Jersey, the leader of the small states, not necessarily slave states, but small states, Patterson is vehemently, well, moderately anti-slavery. He's not pro-slavery, but he's putting forth a position now that the pro, uh, the, the, the anti-slavery folks are starting to cling to. He can regard Negro slaves in no light but as property, In other words, the people who are anti-slavery now are putting forth the political theory that the slaves are are not men at all. They're just property. They can't see them as anything else. They have no free agent. See, they can't decide for themselves. They have no personal liberty, no faculty of acquiring property, but on the contrary are themselves property. And like other property, they are entirely at the will of the master. Has a man in Virginia a number of votes in proportion to the number of his slaves. And if Negroes are not represented in the states to which they belong, 
Why should they be represented at all in the national government? It's an odd dichotomy of history that our, those who opposed slavery take the position now that slaves not only should not be counted as three-fifths of a person, not be counted as three-fifths of a person, they shouldn't be counted at all. There, there's a, a strange, eerie feeling here in the realization that the men who opposed slavery are now willing to put forth the theory that blacks are not people at all. They're just property, and so they can't be counted solely for the reason of limiting Southern power. Now, the reason for this has become is slightly off-center. There's a realization that happens in the midst of all this discussion about proportional representation. The realization hits, and they begin to discuss the fact that at some point, in order to have proportional representation, you have to know how many people live in each state. And if you don't know, you can't really proportion representation. And so they decide that a census is going to have to be held. There's no big deal about a census. Uh, obviously, they've happened throughout history, even back to biblical eras. It's just a question of time. How often do we do it? When do we do it? And what do we actually count? Now, this is where the problem comes in. The first recommendation, in fact, the, the initial recommendation ac accepted by the convention, is that they count both persons and wealth, and that they proportion the Congress, what will eventually become the Congress, based on those two factors, persons and wealth. And the argument is, th the realization that the argument that, well, if slaves are property, then we shouldn't be counting them as three-fifths of a person because now you're double, essentially double counting them. You're counting them as a purse, three-fifths of a person, and you're counting them as wealth to increase the proportional representation of the South. This is problematic because the realization hits that at some point there are going to be more states. There are already, even as we're doing this, people pouring into what will become Tennessee and, and Kentucky. Vermont, of course, has been heckling people for years since the American Revolution to become a state. The Northwest Territories are in, are in play here. There's Georgia, Virginia basically claims everything to the Mississippi River west of itself. Uh, Georgia is eyeing very, very uh, voraciously what will become Alabama and Mississippi as its own, uh, that they're willing to give up. But all these territories that will eventually become states, that's already recognized here, if the three-fifths and property issue remains in play, how do we limit the expansion of slavery? Particularly since the general belief, although it didn't actually happen in history, the general belief at the time is that more and more people are moving south more and more immigrants are coming into the South, more and more slaves are being brought into the South, and so the population is obviously going to increase. How do we check the expansion of slavery into these new states? And if the slave states become more and more, the non-slave states become less and less, then essentially what happens in this national legislature on proportional representation and wealth representation, because there's slaves are wealth now, 
eventually what happens is the slave mentality, the slave control, eventually just takes over the entire legislation. It runs everything. The South becomes the power base of the nation. This vision looking forward is what's causing Governor Morris to have some real problems. Keep in mind that there's still some, I don't want to call them raw feelings, but there's still some, we've already seen it, Madison himself uh, has, has brought some of these questions in as to which states did the most for the American Revolutionary War. And of course, the Northeast bore the brunt of the conflict, although there was heavy fighting in the Carolinas, but it was primarily between Tories and loyalists and, and rebels. There was, there's a sense here that, and it's an, it's an incorrect sense, but there is a, a palpable feeling among some of these delegates that the South really didn't suffer during the American Revolutionary War. That the North, particularly the New England states, bore most of the burden, and Virginia as well, and consequently, they should have perhaps a bit more say in what the affairs of the nation are, running the, the affairs of the nation. And, the, and now, the way things are set up, the South is going to eventually just overrun everything. And so, Morris shows up and he immediately starts questioning the three-fifths. There's a lot of debate about the, the property element of the census. And you will, of course, understand, because you fill out your census forms every 10 years now, that the property element of that has, was quickly removed. It was quickly realized that that was going to be a problem, particularly when you get into direct taxation and so forth and so on. Uh, let's just count people. Let's just count the people and three-fifths of the slaves. But again, this still creates a great deal of friction. William Davy, as I mentioned, has heard a couple of days of this argument. And again, he doesn't say much, but now he rises and he is not happy, this North Carolinian. He sees that it was meant by some gentlemen to deprive the Southern states of any share of representatives representation for, for their blacks. He was sure that North Carolina would never, underline bold print, never confederate on any terms that did not rate them as at least three-fifths. If the New England states mean, therefore, to exclude them altogether from the government, this business is at an end. And he sat down. Again, I go back to my statement that I've made before. One of the things that frustrates me the most about the Constitution, the study and the history of the Constitution, and today, are the people who stand up and say, they would have done it better. They would have done it differently. They would have done it, uh, you know, the, the Constitution was written by white uh, slave-owning misogynists who were only interested in power and, and race. The fact of the matter is, no power on earth was going to end slavery in 1787. It wasn't going to happen. And no person who says that they could have is telling the truth. They, they're either intentionally ignorant of the debate that was going on, or they're delusional. They don't understand any of it. They haven't, they haven't paid any attention to it. The problems that were faced here were clear. The slave states made it clear. You give us three-fifths or there isn't going to be a union. 
And again, the purpose of the Constitutional Convention and the purpose of the Constitution is not to establish a moral code. This is not scripture. In point of fact, I would remind you that the convention specifically rejected the idea of opening each session with prayer. Like it or not, the Constitution is about as secular as you can get. Yes, I know that other people, other founders and framers have said along the way that the Constitution is meant for a moral people, and there's some truth to that. But to take one person's statement and to apply it across the board is misreading of history. The simple fact is that the southern states were not going to confederate, they were not going to unite if the northern states tried to deprive them of their slaves. Whether men within or without, as we're going to hear in a moment, uh, we're not going to allow that. Major Butler of South Carolina would say, he would rise to say, the security the southern states want is that their Negroes may not be taken away from them, which some gentlemen, within or without doors, have a very good mind to do. It's, it's intriguing and it's important that we understand this. Again, history is not simple. And history doesn't always go the way we want it to go. I told you before, I'm taking this course in the history of conservatism. I think I'll play for you a clip from that coming back from the break here in just a moment that talks about the fact that if you're comfortable with the way history went, you're not reading history. You need to understand and you need to accept the simple truth. The men who most vehemently oppose the institution of slavery understand that there can be a union with slavery or disillusion without it. History is never fun in the sense of it never goes the way we want it to go. But ultimately, the only real solution to, his, to his slavery is to form a national government that's capable of changing it. Without that, imagine how history would have gone. Do you really believe that in 1861, a United States of North America, consisting of primarily the New England states and a few Western states, maybe Ohio, Kentucky, that area, would invade the South simply to destroy slavery in the Confederacy? Do you, do you honestly think that would have happened? It seems unlikely. This is a moment of history wherein the debate has become so fierce that the men who understand that this is about forming a government, not a moral code, are going to set aside their moral position on slavery in favor of the greater good, in favor of the formation of the United States government. Not something we like to think about, but it is the truth. It's Constitution Thursday. Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. History is strange. It's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. 
If you hear a historical story and at the end you feel thoroughly satisfied by it and find that it perfectly coincides with your own political inclinations, it probably means that you're actually listening to ideology or mythology. History won't oblige us, and much of its challenge and interest come from its immovable differentness from us and from our own world. So what we have to do is to approach it as calmly as possible. Gouverneur Morris rises. As the room becomes quiet, as he steps gingerly around the room, his peg leg clicking on the floor, he says in response to Davy's statement, it has been said that it is high time to speak out. I, therefore, will now speak. He was mournful. He was frustrated. He opposes the three-fifths compromise. And he reminds the entire convention of something that everybody seems to know, but nobody's willing to really openly acknowledge. The Southerners cannot agree to certain provisions, but those same states cannot, quote, require what the other states will never admit. He believes that the people of Pennsylvania will never agree to representation of Negroes. State of Pennsylvania, of course, heavenly Quaker. Just as the southern states say that there must be three-fifths representation, Morris refuses to accept that some states will accept any representation of Negroes, and he specifically points out Pennsylvania. This doesn't move anybody. Any, everybody just sort of sits there and, and, and stares at him. The argument becomes more intense. Those who, this very morning, uh, General Pickney of South Carolina, found himself agreeing with Morris on another issue, but now he's angry at Morris over this bringing up this three-fifths again thing. He, he reaches the point where he basically says, anything that comes from Morris, I will oppose, period. Edmund Randolph, governor of Virginia, rises. And he reminds the convention property and slaves should not be exposed to the danger under a government instituted for the protection of property. We urge strenuously that the three-fifths ratio would provide security for slavery. And even his own confusion, his own angst, his own dichotomy at being a slaveholder, he laments that such a species of property exists, but since it does exist, it requires the protection and the security that the Southerners are insisting upon. The Virginia delegation, as we've mentioned before, has kind of, despite the fact that they're one of the largest states and they're one of the leading states, they, the Revolution guys are there, General Washington is there, despite the fact that the uh, Virginian wrote the Declaration of Independence, despite the fact that they have their own issues with, with slavery, they're constantly pulled in both directions because they understand that slavery is not good, at least morally, but they don't really know how to get rid of it. George Washington is sitting there. Madison is taking notes. These are all slave owners. They're supporting the Southerners' fear of action against slavery. Now seems to be coming real as Morris makes his statements. Rufus King, however, supports him. He accuses the South of holding the Constitutional Convention hostage 
he even goes so far to prophesy that the South would have even greater power to, to hold the rest of the nation hostage in the future. Quote, there will be no point at which they will not be able to say, do us justice or we will separate. And three-fifths ratio is approved again in another vote. Rufus King's words are remarkable. If you were to trace the history of the American Civil War and, and the succession crisis leading up to that, the nullification crisis leading up to that, the, the argument was always, do us what we want or we will separate. Even today we see that to a degree, don't we? Do things the way we want them or we'll separate. It's a ridiculous argument that's never going to fly, but in that era, it was easily done. And yet, the very states, and this is something that people don't like to talk about, the very states who benefited most from the compromises, as Rufus King predicts here, continue to push and push and push until they get what they want. And if they don't get what they want, then they separate. As the matter of the census is brought up again, Morris rises again. He dismisses the distinction between North and South as either fictitious or real. It's a strange thing to say. But his remarks are, if fictitious, let it be dismissed and let us proceed with all due confidence. If it's real, instead of attempting to blend incompatible things, let us at once take friendly leave of one another. He reminds us that the southern population is expected to soon outstrip the north. And with the new states forming in the west, if a southern alliance occurs, he warns that everything was to be apprehended from the southerners getting the power into their hands. It's at this moment that Major Butler makes his statement about the security of the southern states and his belief that men in the north want to take their slaves away. You mean to take our slaves? And Morris's response to that accusation is telling. He is completely and utterly silent, acknowledging the fact that, yes, I do and others here do want to take your slaves away from you. Slavery is bad. Slavery is evil. Slavery is a stain. And it must be done away with. But there is a realization in the room. We are not here to establish a moral code. We are not here to write scripture for America. We are here to establish a government, not a new moral order. And in that moment of silence, there's a realization that history should speak loudly to us with. There is the realization that we must be united. And in order to be united, whether the southern states are holding us hostage or whether there's some legitimacy to their argument of the small states, regardless of all of those things and all of those personal beliefs and all of those conditions, we have reached the moment of realization that we're either going to have slavery as a nation or we're going to have some states that form their own nation without it. And we will not be whole. And the entirety of the effort of the American Revolution 
and its war that followed will have been completely in vain. None of the states is strong enough on their own or even in union with a couple of other ones. None of them are strong enough. None of them are close enough to unite in such a way that they will be able to withstand any foreign invasion. This goes back to the very beginning, the very first day when Edmund Randolph stood and outlined the problems that the nation faces. We're not going to last. We're not going to be able to survive. And if the liberties we fought for are to be protected, we're going to have to have a government that can do it. And now there's the realization that in order to have that government, the majority in the room is going to have to allow the minority in the room to get its way. And that part of that way includes the three-fifths compromise, and it includes equal representation in the Senate. And it's that moment when what will become known as the Connecticut Compromise, it's already actually been introduced, when that moment of realization as Morris limps and clicks back to his seat and sits down in that moment of silence after, after Pickney's accusation, it's the realization that yes, compromise sometimes means giving up something that is very important to you. But it's also the realization that there is no solution to this problem that would result in the United States being a nation. Obviously, this problem will go forward. Rufus King's prediction will come true. The South will continue to push for laws. It will continue to push for expansion of slavery. It will continue to push for Supreme Court decisions that will not only expand slavery, but will continue to reinforce the idea that not all men are created equal. And this will go on and on and on until the point where there's nothing left to push for, except a president will be elected who in no way, shape, or form has any intention of dealing with slavery at all, but he will be accused of doing so by the South. They will come to believe that he's going to. Men, gentlemen, within or without of doors, mean to take our slaves. And the South will once again say, do as we want or we're going to go away. We're going to dissolve. And they will. Oddly enough, they will choose as a form of government, the very form of government that the United States is trying to get rid of at this point at the convention, a confederation with all of its problems and with all of its flaws and with all of its failures and with all of its doom. They will choose that form of government over the strong central government. And we will watch play out, in essence, the very things that Edmund Randolph has warned about at the beginning of the convention, the reasons confederacies fail. And ultimately, the southern states, having lost their slaves and lost the war, will rejoin in what will eventually become what, in many ways, was the vision of many of the framers at that time, with a strong central government able to protect property and lives and where all men are created equal. It will take time, perhaps down to even to our time, to fulfill all of the promises of that vision. But it really begins that day, that July 14th afternoon in Philadelphia, where the compromise is made 
and the acceptance is made that we're going to have to put up with slavery, at least for now, in order to form a government capable of solving this problem downstream. History doesn't always give us what we want, folks. It doesn't always fit our agendas. We find out when we study that people that we have believed thought one way really thought another. And it's up to us at that moment then to approach it with some calmness and rationality and begin to see the bigger picture and to continue moving forward, which is what the convention is now going to be able to finally do. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.